Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. Today on Habits and Hustle, we have Mark Randolph, also best known as the co-founder and the first CEO of Netflix. Heard of them? Uh, Mark Randall's career as an entrepreneur, though, spans more than four decades. He's founded or co-founded a half a dozen other successful startups, including most recently Locker Data Sciences, which he sold to Google in 2019 for a cool $2.6 billion. He is currently mentoring a handful of other early stage companies and advising hundreds of other entrepreneurs. He is also an active seed investor in startups all over the world and an author of the internationally best-selling memoir called That Will Never Work. He also has a podcast called That Will Never Work, where he dispenses advice, encouragement, and tough love to struggling entrepreneurs. I really enjoy doing this podcast with Mark. He is super down to earth, uh, gave really practical, tactile information for entrepreneurs uh, at every stage. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode because I really enjoyed speaking with him. I was really happy and excited to even be speaking to you even more so after I was, after I read your book, after I kind of watched you in a bunch of different podcasts, because you like, you speak my language. I mean, I, I, I kid you not. I did a Ted talk maybe a year and a half ago with the one, with what I say over and over again is the one thing that you say over and over again, which is this whole, like, stop thinking and start doing and like action, action, action. And that really is like a kind of like your tag, like that's what your book is about, really, and about like and that that's the tagline. So I was like, this is my kind of guy. And then every time like you opened your <laughs> mouth and said something else, I'm like, you like the outdoors, about that. I mean, everything. I'm like, I can't wait to actually have the chance to speak to you. I guess not in person, but I guess as close as close possible. What passes for it these days, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are you where do you actually live? Are you in California, but just north? Yeah, I live in Santa Cruz. Oh, so you're North, Northern California, but you know, south of San Francisco, um, kind of in the more rural. It's nice, right? Well, I'm I'm just really happy to have you on the podcast. So so welcome. Thank you very much. A pleasure. You're, oh, well, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. So let's get right into it because I got so many questions for you. I I don't even. Let's just start with what I said. The whole stop thinking and stop and and stop acting concept. Do, do you feel that? Um, as an entrepreneur, I mean, you've had a, quite a, you know, your, 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 uh, your career has been just exceptional. This is Netflix was not obviously your only success that you've had. The, the, the newest one is Looker. Is it called Looker Data? Is that? Yeah, Looker, Looker Data. Yeah. That was acquired by Google for what? $2.6 billion as well. Um, yeah, I know, right? I mean, like, you're, you're no slouch, right? Like, you're, you're doing really, you're picking well and you're, you're, but you kind of like pride yourself on being the startup guy. Like, you kind of really enjoy that space a lot, right? Like the actual, the, the, the beginnings of a company, the startup. So I guess my first question would be to you, like, can you, do you think that an entrepreneur is born or made? Do you think you have to have certain qualities and characteristics to have the chop, so to speak? Or is it something that can actually, be learned over time? I 100% believe it can be learned over time. I explicitly think it's not something that you have to be born with. Or more specifically, I just don't want people to think they can't do it because they don't have some special talent that's uh, irretrievable. 
I mean, right. I think one of the things I really try and emphasize, and, and it sounds stupid, is like how unspecial uh, I am. I mean, I, I do have certain things that I'm really good at, but there are things that I worked at and taught myself and learned through practice rather than something that I sprang forth fully formed from my mother's womb as and immediately began working on a pitch deck or something like that. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. Th these are all things that I think, I really think anyone can do it. And I'm not saying that someone can just, you know, roll out of 12th grade and immediately do a huge, you know, $50 million round startup. No, but right. just the exact same way you wouldn't, roll out of your 12th grade high school tennis team and then immediately say, I'm ready to play in Wimbledon. You've got to kind of work, maybe you do, but you got to work <laughs> the way, work your way up. And uh, the same thing goes for entrepreneurship. So it, the only way to do it is not necessarily the big leagues. If you have an idea, you know, like, like we both say, just let's just try it. Just try it. And you talk about that. Like, so before I even go into that part, what, what you said something just now, it was interesting. You said you, you were really good at certain things. What were, what do, you, what do you think that you're really good at that kind of helped your, your, your trajectory of so? Uh, one thing that I've kind of honed over time is something, I guess I call it remote empathy, which is kind of the ability to understand how people may feel about something without necessarily watching them. You know, when you're in a one-on-one -on -one and you say something and then someone nods or they smile or they, they get nervous, you really can immediately know how your words have impacted them. Right. And then having general empathy is saying, yikes, I know that when I say this, that uh, Jennifer's going to be really disappointed. But remote empathy is saying, I'm going to put together a, a something, an offer, a, a solution, a price point. Um, even the words I use in an email, and I've got a pretty good sense how those things are going to make someone else feel. Uh, and it turns out yeah. that in a startup where you're always doing things that most likely haven't been done before, being able to have an intuitive sense of how those things will impact somebody is a really, really helpful skill. Uh, but again, I don't think I was necessarily born with this. I just was lucky enough to spend the first 10 years of my career as a direct marketing guy, right. which by definition requires being able to anticipate in advance how someone's going to respond to something you've written or priced or described. Um, and it might happen a day or a week or a month in the future as you're looking at a piece of paper. But if you better have some sense of how that's going to work. Uh, so that's just one. I mean, another one, I'll just give you one more, um, is I'm pretty good at this combination of triage and focus. Uh, mm. And triage is this recognition that in a startup, but in most things, there's usually a hundred things you could do. And in a startup, uh, it's more that there's a hundred things that are broken. There's a hundred things crying out for attention that are all screaming, fix me, fix me, fix me. And what the triage is, is recognizing that of all those things, well, a whole bunch of them, no matter what you do, they're still going to be broken. And a whole bunch of them don't really need to be fixed, that they're fine the way they are. But there's a handful of things that if you get those right, it'll make all the rest not matter. And I do have a pretty good intuitive sense about what those focal points should be. And it's paired with this ability to put blinders on 
and say, I'm just going to attack those two things and put 100% of my time into two things rather than 2% of my time into 50 things. Right. So then, and that's a good point too, because I feel like that's what people don't do that very often a lot of times, and that can be their downfall. Oh, I think so too. They have the sense that they need to be, everything needs to be perfect or that everything needs to be in place. Mm -hmm. I'm launching a company. I better have a good sales function. I better have a good support function. I better have a good way to do this, that, and the other thing. Right. And, and that's great. And you end up with everything kind of half-assed, but you have it all. Right. <laughs> but in fact, it's so much more important to pick one piece of it. And if you get that one piece of it right, they will ignore it. I was just talking to an entrepreneur this morning and they were asking about Looker, you know, and, yeah. and I was saying when we launched that, uh, it was really a terrible product. It was hugely deficient in the feature set that most companies would want. But we knew it did one thing and one thing really well uh, because we did that on purpose. Uh, and we just had to find customers who had such a severe problem. Right. They didn't care about the bells and whistles. They just wanted that one problem solved, and lo and behold, this product would do it. So in right. that case, the thing to get right was the product. That isn't always the case, um, but usually there's a focal point. Well, because you've had a couple of different, before you did, before Netflix even became Netflix, you tried a, a bunch of other, you had a lot of other uh, ideas, right? So you had, you wanted to do a dog food company or like specialized dog food for, well, you could like, you tell me, but I want to, I want to talk about that, how <laughs> your whole trial and error process, like in the car with, you know, your co-founder, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, because the people seem to think that if you do a startup, it's got to come from some passion, you know, <laughs> you could tell by my, uh, my tone of voice <laughs> what I think about that. But it's okay, not like, it's, great. it's not like Reed Hastings, my co-founder and I were movie guys, you know, right? You know, we didn't spend our time commuting back and forth to work. So we commuted together, you know, debating who is the best French cinematographer or, you know, <laughs> not at all. My kids right. were like, uh, I, three, seven, and nine, or something, and so I wow. watched Lion King probably six or seven hundred times. Right, uh, but so th this was much more about anything could have gone. We have different criteria, so yeah, I pitched. I mean, one of the I I get in the car um, with Riggs. We commuted together to work. Right, and I would pitch him on the on the, my latest crazy brainstorm, and they were crazy brainstorms. And one of them, as you alluded to, was custom personalized dog food that we would formulate a blend for your specific pet for his age and gender you know activity level climate whatever and then you would subscribe to it and and the same thing <laughs> happened every time i would get in the car excited and i have done some homework and i'd pitch this thing and reed wouldn't say anything he'd just be driving looking out the window and I would just wait patiently, and, you know, a minute would go by or maybe a minute and a half or two minutes. And finally, he would like turn and go, that will never work. And right. then he'd <laughs> lay into me with this incredible business school-like dissertation on all the flaws in my reasoning and the market issues or legal challenges or regulatory problems. And then, you know, I'm I was ready. I know what was going to happen. So then, of course, I lay right back into him. Of course, no, I have done the research. And... And we would basically beat these things to death. And if we came to places where we both agreed we didn't understand enough to really get to a resolution, then I would spend the day um, researching it 
And then in the carpool ride back, we would just launch right back into it, but armed with new information. And we did That's that every so day. And we did that with custom dog food. I pitched him personalized shampoo. I pitched him <laughs> doing... These using, are good ideas, actually. I think these are all great. And people are doing them now, aren't they? And most of them have happened now, as a yeah. matter of fact. Well, part of it was the things I, I, I... As I mentioned earlier, I was a direct marketing guy for 10 years. Right. And so I was coming, and I one, one element, so I was big into personalization, okay? Right. The other thing is one aspect of being a direct marketing guy is two of my startups were magazines, and they were right. subscription magazines. So I really was into subscriptions. So that's why I was eager at subscriptions. And one of the reasons why so many of those things are happening now is that 25 years ago, which is when some right. of these conversations started taking place, People did not apply subscription business models to things other than maybe book of the month club or magazines. Right. Um, and so or the, or it was Columbia, wasn't wasn't that Columbia oh, that was Record and yeah. Tape Club? Exactly yeah. right. You get your get your pick your pick out eleven albums for ninety nine cents. Exactly. That's where Isn't I got that, uh, Rolling Stones, Sticky Fingers, and Steppenwolf. I think were my two picks from my uh, oh really records for ninety nine cents. That just dates how old I am. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, I don't even want to tell you how old I am because <laughs> I don't even tell you the, the, the albums I picked. But I, I no, I totally hear you. It's not funny though how like you were kind of like ahead of your time because now everything is subscription, right? Like not just streaming and everything. Yeah. And personalized, right? Like everyone's doing, oops, a personalized supplement, a personalized shampoo, dog food, and the list goes on. Nobody seems to, that's like the the hot trend that's kind of become the, the, the thing now. Well, if I had a vision, and it's not necessarily my vision, it's just the vision that you recognize something's happening and it's going to be big, right. was when I saw the internet, I mean, and I, you know, I, I was one of those people who someone came in and goes, you should check this thing out and installed the browser from Champaign-Urbana oh. that Mark Andreessen had written in his dorm room on my computer. Um, I, I was going, oh my God, this thing is unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> within recognizing that this could be a tool for doing direct response selling um, at a level that was just going to be unbelievable. In other words, yeah, that would enable this unbelievable personalization. I didn't quite get the subscription thing until a bit later. But I saw the personalization and I saw the e-commerce capability really early, which is why all these ideas that I was pitching Reed right. were combinations of personalization uh, and subscription and e-commerce because I was going this and internet because I go, yeah. the internet's enabling something which we have not yet really seen um, Happen. Ever, yeah. yeah. So then, what happened? So why did those? So he, so Reed didn't love those ideas, right? The the yeah. personalized shampoo and, <laughs> and dog food, obviously. Now, why did he take to the Netflix idea, the concept of DVDs or CDs? And well, he he also didn't like this other one I pitched him, which right. was video rental by mail. Uh, you know, I go, Reed, picture this: eight billion dollar category, and who has it dominated? Blockbuster. And Blockbuster sucks. You know, right. everyone hates the due dates, hate the late fees. They can't find a movie. It's surly clerks. The stores are dirty. I go, there's got to be a way we can do better than that. And I pitched the whole thing. And and so we got into this debate and probably the sticking point in the car was, because this was back in 1996, 97, it was VHS cassettes. And the right. question was, 
that's going to, what's it going to cost? $10 to ship that thing back and forth? There's, and I was going, no, probably can figure out a way. And of course, I came back at five, six o'clock that night getting in the car with my tail between my legs. And no, you're right. These video cassettes are going to cost us an arm and a leg to ship. And so right. that was out the window. So the breakthrough, if you want to call it a breakthrough, was months later uh, where Reed uh, picks me up and said, hey, I read about this thing, their test marketing in San Francisco. It's this little disc, like a music CD, but it's going to have movies on it. And all of a sudden, we kind of began debating around whether that might reinvigorate this old video rental by mail idea we had tossed around a month and a half ago. Right. And so, and then here's the here's the real kicker, because this time, rather than going into the office and then setting me off on my little research mission, <laughs> we actually literally turned the car around mid commute and drove back down into Santa Cruz, where we both lived, um, and said, let's figure out whether this, in fact, works or not. This is not so this is something we can actually find out today. Um, and went to look for a DVD, of course, futilely, because it was still in test market. And so we said, well, let's settle, we'll mail a CD, a music CD. And so we bought a used music CD from like a one of those music swap places. Right. And then went two doors down and bought a little gift envelope from a stationery store, like you'd put a greeting card in, and mailed a used music CD to Reed's house in Santa Cruz using the US post office, and then went to work. And then the next morning, when Reed picked me up, he just had a little envelope with an unbroken CD in it that had gotten to his house in less than 24 hours for the price of a postage stamp. And so if there was, as they say in screenwriter speak, an inciting event, yeah. you know, <laughs> yes. this was potentially it because all of a sudden we go, wow, this, this, this does change something. And we can now ship a movie anywhere in the country for at the time, 29 cents. That's amazing. Then what was the next step after that? Like we know the, the, the we know how it kind of everything evolved. So then you realize that that can actually happen, right? So then what? Like so, the next day, then you he got the CD. Like he got the CD. <laughs> then what do you guys say? Like then what happens? Well, then then you begin saying, "Let's." Let, there's got to be a flaw here, and usually the process of doing the due diligence and an idea is this process of turning over rocks, and all of a sudden you turn something over and there's something really ugly underneath it, and you go, "Oh, that's the end of that." And right. so I began turning over rocks because I I didn't I didn't know anything about video rental except for what it felt like to walk into a blockbuster. But I had no idea how the economics worked or the turns. I had no idea how many DVDs there were, how many DVD players were there going to be. Um, I didn't even know how to build a, it wasn't like you could go to Shopify and be up and running with it. Right. You had to build your own. And I go, what tools and technology are there to actually serve web pages? There was a ton to learn. I mean, it included even uh, this incredible trip I took to the Video Software Dealers Association, <laughs> which was the trade industry for the the video rental industry, which at the time was this huge business. Right. And it was all finding myself in Chicago in this massive, huge conference center. It was like being on some kind of hallucinogen uh, <laughs> mixed with a Disney movie. You know, big, giant, inflatable Wallace and Gromits that were three and four stories tall and wow. people walking around in plush outfits. And I mean, it was, <laughs> what have I done? But anyway, that's right, a long right, story. Right, exactly. You, you do all those sort of things. And then finally, you do get to that point 
that every entrepreneur gets to where there's no more to learn. That I have answered some of the basic questions, like what will it cost to build a website, I think, et cetera, but I could never answer the real question, which is, does anybody really care? Is right. anybody actually going to do this? Uh, will someone really rent a movie and then wait two days for it to arrive? Uh, or put it a different way, are the benefits of an online store, the infinite selection, the fact that I can have it categorized in different categories at the same time, that I can have editorial content, all the things that I'd use to pump someone up about the idea, right. is that enough to offset the fact that you've got to wait two days for your movie. And there's only one way to find that out and you have to do it. And you right. have to kind of make a decision to move forward and base it on incomplete or inconclusive or contradictory information and leap. And that's a classic entrepreneurial trait. And uh, Reed, bless his heart, uh, wrote a check for $1.9 million. I uh, leased a old bank office with dirty green carpet and an old bank vault. Uh, we hired about a dozen people. Uh, we spent six months building a the kind of e-commerce website that now you could have going in a couple hours for $19.95 a month. And in it's April amazing. of 1998, ta-da. How, how, would, how would someone do that on a small <laughs> scale, right? Like, ta-da, like, like billions and billions of dollars later. But like, how does that, because you, you talk a lot about this, because I know with your podcast, that will never work and your book, <laughs> that will never work. You talked to, well, in your podcast, you talked to, you know, people who are entrepreneurs, regular people who are trying to like make a business and you kind of go through like how they could attempt before they go grandiose, they have to like go micro and kind of see if their idea works. And I know you talked, I, I heard you talk about the girl who had that idea of sharing clothes yeah, uh, yeah, and which is a great idea, I think too. How would someone try the idea that you had on without 1.9 million, right? Where you would have to like see if there's a market for people renting like like you send it like how would you do something like that to send it's a really great question and and it's true my story might lead people in the wrong direction but this was a long time ago and right. it, it was a different world because back then if you had a e-commerce idea uh, you couldn't, like I said, just dial up a Shopify instance. Uh, now you had to actually write the code for a website server. You couldn't get Amazon to host it in the cloud. You had to buy servers. You had to put them in a closet. You had to wire them all together. Right. Uh, you had to write your own um, security software. If you wanted to take payments, you couldn't use Stripe or PayPal. You had to write the portals to the bank. Right. And so testing this thing, finding out if it'll work was... You're right, a million dollars in six months, uh, which is why back then to get funded, you really, I was 38. I mean, you had to have a track record. You couldn't just wing it. You couldn't wave your hands. Um, right. It's different now. I mean, now there is Shopify if you have an e-commerce right. idea. There is Amazon Web Services. There is um, uh, Optimizely for testing and metrics. There is, there's all these incredible tools. And so what I've sometimes said is that for us, the distance from the idea to the validation was six months and a million dollars. Right. And now the idea, the distance from the idea to the validation is almost infinitely quick. Yeah. Which means that you can try hundreds of things. I mean, the example that you, you alluded to earlier about the young woman who I was coaching who had this clothing rental idea, 
you know, at first she was approaching it like it was 1998. You know, do I, <laughs> should I drop out of school? Uh, how do I raise money? How do I find a technical co-founder? And you have to go, whoa, 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 slow down. Let's just parse this apart. You're, I'm, you don't need to prove that you can build an app. That's proven. You right. don't need to prove that people will trust you with their credit card. That's proven. You've got to prove a simple fundamental thing, which is will your idea of people borrowing each other's clothes have any validity? Mm-hmm. And I said, we can, we can do that just by with a piece of paper, you know, just write on it. You want to borrow my clothes? Knock and tape it to your door. And forget six months from now, you're going to find out in six minutes from now whether anyone knocks. And if they don't, well, you've learned something right there about your idea. Yeah. And if they do knock, well, fantastic. Now you're going to learn the next thing, which is how do you feel about uh, whether there are problems with size or there are problems with taste and style. Now, let's say someone borrows something even better. Now you're going to find out how you feel when it comes back stained or you need to pay for dry cleaning and it gets ripped. But all of this is not scalable. It's not repeatable, right. but it's quick and it's cheap and it's easy and it's almost instantaneous and you can do it for a piece of paper. And yeah. what I've learned from mostly from stuff that I, all the coaching and mentoring that I've done since leaving Netflix is that almost every idea can be broken down to a simple enough form, a simple enough form that you can validate it quickly and cheaply and easily as almost as simply as with the piece of paper. And I give hundreds of examples of people who've called or who I've mentored on the podcast who come in thinking the only way to figure out if this idea is going to work is by, you know, fill in the blank, get my computer science degree, uh, quit my day job, uh, whatever bullshit excuse they have for not getting started. And if you begin walking them through it, you go, there's almost always a way to start validating your assumptions right now um, yeah. and do that in a way that's so quick and sh- simple and easy. You don't need to quit your day job. You don't need to get a computer science degree. You don't need to raise money that all these barriers that everyone thinks they have uh, toward getting started, I believe, are largely fear-based or uh, naive- naivete-based. Right. I think it's easier for sometimes for people to have these these um, barriers, right, to entry, so they don't feel uh, they, they don't feel like they failed, right? Like they like first I need to raise all this money, and then like so they go through like a year of trying to put a deck together, and yeah. you know connecting to this person. When when you're right, like there's so many easier ways to even see if your idea is valid that you just save yourself so much time and energy and emotion, really, right? Um, and more than that, the idea that you spend a year putting your pitch deck together is a bad idea. Yeah. I don't even know what it is. They're all bad ideas. They're all <laughs> flawed. It's just the inherent nature of anything you come up with in your head. It is absolutely wrong. And so spending a year finding that out is tragic. You want to so start true. the process of finding it out as soon as you can because you're going to be disappointed and you're going to go, oh, oh, but wait. Oh, that was interesting. I wonder if I tried this. And in the time that you spent writing your deck, you could have made so much progress. And that's what oh. pains me. That's what my mission here. 
get the, right. get and you, exactly. And you're, you're doing a good job of it. You have a lot of, <laughs> I feel like you're coaching and mentoring all the time. I mean, this is, yeah. it's amazing. Uh, so, so then how did you even like, let, let's go back a second with Reed because yeah. you was he, you guys worked together. You guys were buddies. Like you guys are going, you're basically carpooling back all and of the forth. Above. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are you guys still friends by the way? Oh yeah, absolutely. We still live in the same town. Our kids went to the same uh, same school. We're in the same social group. Um, you know, it's birthday coming up. Oh yeah, wow! So, so you guys uh, are like buddies still. I wouldn't say buddies. It's not like we uh, go grab a beer every not every uh, every evening and sit in the back porch and you know whittle. But uh, you know, <laughs> do you even whittle or no, drink beer? That, there's the problem. <laughs> There's that you know, but so he's he's not certainly someone I see all the time. But we're absolutely friendly, and we still you know we still shoot each other notes when we see something interesting in the paper. That kind that kind of friend. Right, right, right. So then, okay, so how did you guys like? So that's how you guys met. You worked together. And you just ended up like carpooling together to work. And Reed's company bought one of my companies. So oh, okay, uh, we had a, a, company, a company that you started or a company you were working at. Uh, started. Yeah, okay, so, so he, oh, okay. Myself and two co-founders started this little company. It was early. It was maybe only seven or eight months in. So it was only about 10 of us. Oh, and Reed's wow. company bought us. And but what happened was the other eight or nine of them got consigned to this uh, dungeon in the basement of the building to be a <laughs> business unit. Right. And But Reed goes, well, crap, my, my VP of corporate marketing left. And he goes, you, like, you know, you with a sweater, get up. And so all of a sudden um, I went from this cerebral positioning, you know, product strategy and all of a sudden, boom, I'm running marketing for this multi-thousand person international software company and working directly for Reed and learning he lives in the same town that I do. And so we began commuting. So we got a chance to see each other professionally. So we, we both right. had this mutual respect there that's where kind of we established that we thought so simultaneously similarly and very differently about problems but also got a chance to know him and like him from spending the time in the car going back and forth to work wow that's amazing can we talk i, I wanted to ask you something because i saw this you talked about this the canada principle i'm canadian so of course that yes sorry <laughs> no, okay. you're lucky, actually. I mean, I, I know, I know. I just, <laughs> I mean, I, I always have, I get a commentary from whenever I say I'm Canadian, but yeah. of course, the whole Canada principle stands out to me. Can you just talk a little bit about that and where it came from? Certainly. It's, it's at, at Netflix, and it happens at every single company, is that all of a sudden there's something which is the, uh, the apparently low hanging fruit. And in this case, for us, it was Canada. We were, we were <laughs> in business in the United States right. and everybody's coming and going, you guys should enter Canada. You should go, expand into Canada. He goes, that would be such an easy 10% pop. Yeah. I, I think that's about one-tenth the market size of the United States. And so go, okay, well, great. And then you do a little bit of research and you go, wait a minute. Uh, first of all, they speak a different language in parts of Canada. And not only that, they mandate that you speak that other language. Uh, it is a different currency. Um, so the, the, the movies, it, it's somewhat different in terms of the rights. So all of a sudden, one thing begins to, and the postage is different, One the compounds, and you go, this is not low-hanging fruit after all. And more importantly, you go, the time and attention and focus that would go into doing a slightly different business is so much more effective being channeled back into the core business. 
Right. Oh, wow. That's so the, that's that's the Canada principle. And it it it's basically says that low hanging fruit, one, low hanging fruit rarely is, but right. more importantly, that it's it's back to focus. It's almost always better to take your attention and put it on the one or two things which we get them right will lift all the boats than be chasing things. I, I also sometimes call it the the t-shirt principle because as soon as someone's pitching me and they get to the park, go, and then think about when we can begin selling t-shirts <laughs> and I go, okay, you're screwed. Because <laughs> if, you, if you're spending one moment thinking about what's gonna happen after you're successful, you've totally showed me how distractible you are because you should be putting every single bit of attention into getting to successful. Then you can worry about how to further monetize it. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, you actually say in your in the book about how when you hire people or when people were hired at the beginning, it was really about, well, the, just two things about the whole, uh, you know, picking the outfit we'll get to in a second. But it's like you wanted, you wanted to hire like really smart people who could be like a jack of all trades. Versus hiring for very specific things, um, number one. And the other thing was about how, and then, and then the other thing about how you would hire and then you'd make people like wear outfits of their favorite movie <laughs> character, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. Um, what was the point of that? that? To get people close is like to build calm, like to like a first like rapport, I would imagine, or? Absolutely. There's, uh, you're trying. I spent a lot. I've spent a lot of time in the woods. Um, right. more, more specific, not 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 by myself. You know, like uh, <laughs> I was going to say, like cook, what, cooking like, meth or something. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, cutting down trees as a lumberjack. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing in the woods? No, a lot, a lot of time as cl climbing. You know, backpacking. You yeah, know, doing backcountry travel and 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 living. Uh, and one of the wonderful things is that it's almost impossible to preserve your front country veneer in the back it mm -hmm. just takes a couple of days and pretty much everyone looks the same we all smell the same uh you you, you can't style your hair or put on your makeup uh, totally and so it what it does is create this sense of who you are at a real level and it's one of the most wonderful things i think about spending time um outside it's one of the things i think which is so wonderful about sitting around a campfire and that you can't see people it's just it's what it's the exact same thing which causes the attraction of apps like Clubhouse and Green Room. It's right. the, it's the sense of you can't you're closer to being your genuine self. And one of the reasons you go through these semi humiliating rituals is to strip away some of that veneer right. and bond people in a certain way. Um, and to have this feeling of everyone else remembering how they had to go through this. It's just common rite of passage. Right. Um, like hazing kind of. It is like, it is like a hazing. It, it, it It's not that I'm a, 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 uh, I'm not like a big proponent of hazings. It certainly crosses the line sometimes, but I totally understand the yeah. principle behind that, which is what it does to bond, bond us together. And I think it was that, you know, I think maybe now I probably, I'm not sure you can get away with it the same way, but that was the reason why we did it uh, did it that way then. It's too bad. I, I agree. You probably wouldn't be able to, but I think it's a great idea because to your point, to build like, not just to build a rapport, but like you're right, to strip away because everyone presents their sales rep 
to that to like the outside world, right? Like it's only after you have a shared experience or something humiliating or whatever embarrassing that you actually get to really know somebody's like true character and how they respond and you guys become it. All of that's so important. And I feel like, especially in today's time, right, with social media, everyone's like everything snippets of nonsense that is not even really who the human being is. As it's, opposed it's a constructed to, version of yourself, really. I agree. Right. Absolutely. And so when you do these types of like things like that, that's how you kind of get to the real core of the person. Was it your idea to do that or somebody else's idea to uh, do the idea? Yeah, Netflix? Uh, uh, we started doing, I started doing that, but then it was actually Patty McCord who figured out how to scale it, how to make oh. it work. Uh, because the, you know, I, I'm always I love rituals, but I'm also really careful about picking rituals that are scalable, that work not just when you have five people going to six, but when you have five hundred going to six hundred. And she actually did a great job of figuring out how to do that. Although eventually it didn't scale either. I don't think they still do that at Netflix. It's now too right. too dispersed. You'd hire too many people, right? Yeah. Like you'd be hiring yeah. too many people all the time. The thing that really does it is that when you go through challenges together, when you have crises, right. um, when you are threatened, when you're struggling, that has the same effect. However, that's almost impossible to construct. That has right. to happen. But when it happens, and it happens at every startup, um, it's why so many people find that experience so gratifying to uh, you genuinely feel part of something doing something as opposed to at a larger company sometimes you go what am i doing i come to work i move some paper from this box to this box right uh, whereas when you're it, sometimes in a startup it's small enough and you go through this existential threat and you all rally and work really hard and come through it that's a pretty powerful uh, emotional experience. No, absolutely. So then, so what would you say is your leadership style? Do you have one? I know you, like, what would be your, we, we just, is there a particular style you have or? Yes, certainly. I mean, you know, culture is not what you say, it's how you act. So right. I certainly have one. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hesitate a little bit and say it's, it's situational. So the right. first thing about my style is it's very situational, that there are times where when you're making a decision, you go, I'd like to hear what everyone thinks. And, you know, that's a good point. Let's try and come to something we all accept. And that's one way of leadership. However, when the shit hits the fan, you have to then shift gears and go, Jennifer, do this. Uh, John, do this. Mark, do this. And, and you don't want to hear, but no, no, there's no time for that. And your leadership style needs to make that clear. I'm in control. We're in a crisis. We're going to do it this way. Um, so it, it responds. But basically, my style is I am not heavy-handed. My feeling is that my role is directional um, and context. Um, here's and going and here's why. Um, and it's mixed with the sense of I really want us to have a good time. I mean, I, a lot of my hiring is picking people who you have to be really talented too, but will add to the mix, will make this a really fun place. Right. I love I love the people who just love figuring out new ways to amuse their coworkers. <laughs> That's such an unbelievably valuable trait uh, to have because it makes other people want to come to work and enjoy being at work when things occasionally suck. 
So how do you do that though? Like, how do you find, how do you kind of like high interview for that even, you know, like, is it just feel like, what do you, what are some core, um, I know you want them to be smart, obviously, who could be a jack of all trades. Is there some core personality traits though, that you can kind of pinpoint that you like to hire for besides of course, having that ability. It's not something you can hire for. It's, I don't, it's not something you interview for. I think honestly, most people have this inside them. Yeah. And what you're doing is giving a cultural permission for you to express it. Uh, right. By, That's true. By laughing, by uh, encouraging it, by doing it yourself. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's, it, and, you know, not everyone can be super witty, but that's fine. Everyone can shoot a Nerf gun. You know, there's all <laughs> kinds of different ways to, uh, to do this. But the other thing, and it's one of the big advantages of the fact of being a serial entrepreneur, and it was that, you know, when I said, you know, Netflix, I was 38, but it was my sixth startup. And so mm-hmm. I had already begun accumulating people who right. you you work with and you go, oh, this person's I love this person. Right. Um, and then when you begin to have the next startup, it becomes like an ep- like a like the blues, I don't know. Date myself. Like the no, it's blues, okay. It's okay. What? Who? Blue, no, I'm just kidding. Blues, the blues <laughs> Brothers, where the movie essentially could be uh, described as "Let's get the band back together again." Right. And right. So, so you're you, bringing in your favorite people. Yes, you're going. To, you're going around to convince them, and they're working in the diner, and you're going, yeah. "Ah, come on, you got to come do this crazy startup." And they're going, "Oh, she'll, she'll kill me." You know. Anyway, it's uh, it's it's the fun of it's the fun of putting these together, and then you know who the people are who. Will work hard, but will have make it a fun experience, not a uh, not a grind. No, it's true. Did you, is that what you did? You found like you t- you kind of poached people from your from your previous. Oh, play. I mean, who absolutely. were the, who, who were superstars and brought them with you? Absolutely, wow. and again, it's a certain thing you're looking for because yeah. uh, at a startup, you have no idea what you're going to be doing each day. You're going to have to have the temperament that says, "I just spent five weeks putting this together." And it didn't work, so now I'm going to abandon it and do something else, and have that be com- not only completely fine, but great. I get to do something different, uh, and that requires yeah. a certain personality uh, trait. And you're kind of looking for that um, as well. Is there a reason why you would enjoy startups more than the other? Is it is there like are there reasons behind? Like, do you feel that you're more suited for them? Like, why are you? Why do you feel like you're more suited for startups? It's it's one of the lucky things for me is that I figured that stuff out pretty early, right. which is those two critical things in your life, which is what am I good at and what do I like? And it turns out that both of those are the same thing, which is early stage companies that I'm, uh, you know, as we talk, I'm pretty good at it and I love it. And so why wouldn't I want to just do that all the time? It's time to get back to the beach with America's favorite vacation company, Apple Vacations. Book your summer getaway with confidence and enjoy a one-stop vacation shop filled with exceptional values, personalized service, and so much more. With popular destinations like Mexico, the Caribbean, Central America, Hawaii, and the continental U.S., there's a sun-splashed option for everyone. Each all-inclusive Apple Vacations package includes round-trip airfare, hotel accommodations, all meals, drinks, entertainment, and tips. Non-stop transfers are also included at no additional cost at select hotels. 
And for a limited time, you can take $75 off your stay at Ibero Star Hotel and Resorts with promo code SUN75. Don't wait. Go to applevacations.com slash habits dash hustle to get the steal of a deal to your favorite Ibero Star Hotel and Resorts today. Would you say that having self-awareness is a, a key point in terms of someone's overall life success? I mean, not just like personal success, I think not just professional success, but overall, like you knew early on from what everything I've read about you and saw on you is that you wanted balance. Balance was extremely important to you. You had that, what was it like a, you had personal life on Tuesday, you left at five or, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's something that people don't have that, like that, even if they want to, want to do that, I feel a lot of people are scared to kind of put that out there because they're nervous of the failure on the other side. Can you tell us about that whole thing? Yeah. Tuesdays I, at five. Yeah. The, the, the real thing was, you're right. I recognized early on, you know, I didn't call it balance back then, but I recognized early on that my life was going to be pretty sterile if all I did was work. That it was, I, you know, I had a, a, a my, my girlfriend at the time, um, who I was living with though, and going, this relationship is not going to be very sound if she ends up getting the time which is left after I've put everything I have into my work. Right. Uh, that that's just not going to be the basis for a long term sound relationship. I mean, and then we and I, you know I'm still married to her, um, and so oh, I recognize. Congratulations! Make, thank you to make this make to make this work. I have to make this as important as my job, and or maybe more so. But that it's hard because the work never stops sh shouting at me about all the things it needs me to do and it needs me to work late and it needs me to come in early and it needs me to be there on the weekends and my wife bless her heart does not ever do that but right. i still have to make sure i divide my time equally and that just requires a tremendous amount of effort and focus and 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 prioritization and to make my life even more complicated there's a third component to this which is that you, I have some things which I know make me whole as an individual. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's at the aforementioned outdoors time. And unfortunately, going off and doing a three or four day climbing trip or even going flying up into Northern Alaska to go canoeing is not the kind of activity you squeeze in between an 11 o'clock phone call and a two o'clock meeting. Right. You've got to block <laughs> that out along with your time you want to spend with your wife and your family. And keep your business alive. But I said, that problem is the problem I'm going to use my life to solve is how can I have all three of these things work? Um, and so you, know, you asked about the relationship part. But one of the tricks, for example, was we had a date, which was Tuesdays. And every Tuesday, rain or shine, no matter what, um, she can get a sitter, I would leave at 5pm, and we'd have a date night. A no phone date night. And that happened regardless of what was going on at the at office. And, you know, it's a startup. And so, okay, if there's going to be a crisis, okay, we're going to wrap it up by five. Okay, you have to absolutely talk to me on the way to the, on the, talk to me now. We're doing it on the way to the car. And the amazing thing is, and I don't know how the universe aligns like this, but you do this for four or five weeks and lo and behold, the crises stopped happening after five o'clock on Tuesdays. Um, and, 
all of a sudden an even better thing happens because I mentioned before that culture is not what you say, it's what you do. Mm-hmm. And you can talk, you can put a really beautiful break room poster up that says how important it is to have balance in your life, but nothing signals that more strongly than the CEO of the company taking one day a week, leaving at five. And then pretty soon other people begin realizing, hey, it's okay. And they would begin leaving under certain days of the week to spend time with their hobbies or with their family or with. And you guys would be okay with that, like you and Reed would be like, if so, if an employee who was working for you was like, hey, you know, even though there's a crisis, I got to get out of here. I'm having, I'm, I'm going, you know, fly fishing with my girlfriend at five. I'm just making up what it is, or you know, whatever, drinking a beer on my my back porch or whatever. Um, You guys would be cool with that. That's a t- you're you're tiptoeing. Actually, you're tiptoeing. You're barging into an even bigger cultural thing about Netflix. Probably on purpose because right. you're really good at this. Which is that? Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's a compliment coming from you. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a different, a very different thing, but it's a critical thing, which is part of that whole culture that we had developed at Netflix, which now is called kind of the freedom and responsibility culture, which basically says I could care less how much you work. I don't care. I don't care what hours you're in. I don't care. I am really cared about is, are you achieving the things you need to get done? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll, I will, I'll tell you a quick story about, about that since it illustrates it really well. Um, that early on, uh, midway at Netflix, uh, I had a engineering manager who worked for me who you know ran a team of other engineers. Uh, and he came in one day and goes, oh, I've got great news. And I go, tell me. And he goes, I'm in love. There's something corny like that. And I go, you know, <laughs> after the obligatory eye rolling, I go, that is just awesome. Um, uh, congratulations. And he goes, well, is, is there anything about that you want to talk about? And he goes, yeah, actually, yes. Uh, she lives in San Diego. And I go, okay. And he goes, so. I want to propose something. He says, what I'd love to do is I'm going to leave work, uh, you know, maybe late on Thursday. And then I'll work from there on Friday and I'll spend the weekend there and I'll work there on maybe Monday. I'll come back Monday evening. And I go, okay, well, let me try and get something right. If you're asking, is it okay for you to work from San Diego? And because I don't care, you can work anywhere. You can work from the moon. Um, I, I'm, I don't care where you work from. That's fine with me. I go, but if you're asking me, am I prepared to accept less from you because of this? Well, that's an easy one too. No. Um, right. I, you And just think about what your job is. You're an engineering manager. You have other people who rely on you, who right. need you to communicate, uh, put, give them context in their job so they can do their job well. If you can do that from San Diego uh, and only being in the office three days a week, all power to you. You are a better manager than I could be. But I leave it to you. Um, and 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 he made the right decision, in my opinion, which was he didn't think he could uh, fulfill his responsibility to the company while doing it that way. Right. Um, but it was up to him. Meaning it is so ridiculous. You know, you, you're probably aware that the Netflix has these interesting policies, you know, and their vacation policy is that there isn't one. You take time when you want to. Uh, But if you are a warehouse manager and you say, I'm going to take my vacation for two weeks with the two weeks leading up to Christmas, what kind of judgment is that? You're the wrong person. 
What right. you should be doing is going, I need to take time. Vacation's important. You absolutely, but take it when it's not going to impact the business. And this is not just a managerial thing. When we hire a receptionist, we don't say, you're a receptionist. Your job is to be here from nine to five. You get an hour for lunch. Uh, pencils go in a box. No, here's your job description. Your job is to put the best face forward for the company, period. You decide what hours you need to be at your desk. If you have a doctor's appointment, I don't need to hear that. I, I trust you to cover your spot. You don't need me to set a policy that says there's no eating lunch at the desk. You should be able to make a judgment. Does sitting there with a mouthful of pizza put the best face forward for the company or doesn't it? But And what that does is it gives them the freedom to make the decisions, which is so empowering for people. But it couples it with the responsibility to achieve the objectives for the company. And it's my job as a manager to make sure those objectives are set clearly and that I give you all the context and information you need to make good judgments. And that, that and and that's just that that's, it, that means it applies every place. It's not just a VP. It's for anyone in the company. See, I think that's so clever, right? And you're putting the onus on the other person to make those make those decisions because I think again, people out of fear would be scared, and or people like to have direction. Like they like to know. A lot of people who work for companies are they want to have a box and say, okay, I have to be here at this time. I got to leave at that time. But and they're not on because they're not entrepreneurs, right? They are people who like to work for corporate companies. And, and, and that's perfectly okay. I'm not saying that there's no value judgment here that one personality type is different than the other. But one of the huge things that Netflix has done, which gives it a huge competitive advantage, is realizing that the most talented people um, in at least the, this industry, what they want is not kombucha on tap. They don't want <laughs> fireman poles and nap pods. Uh, they don't want all that bullshit that people seem to think is the perks. What they want is freedom. They want to be empowered to make decisions, not be a person who gets told what to do. And so true. What most oh my companies, gosh. when companies get bigger, there's this natural problem, which is that you begin diluting people, you begin getting people who don't have good judgment. And then the well-meaning company goes, we can't, they, we can't do this. We need some guidelines. So, oh, we're putting in place a vacation policy so they don't do something stupid. Or they go, and everyone goes, oh. And then they go, oh, worse. They go, okay, here's a travel policy. And the person's going home going, I'm in charge of a $30 million quarterly budget, but you don't trust my judgment about whether I know what class hotel I could stay in or whether yes. I should travel coach or or or, 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 or economy to Japan. It, it's just, it's, it's infantilizing. Or, or they go, you need to approve every expense over 500. Wh what? You don't trust me to make good judgments for the company? And so what Netflix did was rather than build these guardrails for people who have mediocre to poor judgment, they said, what would happen if we built a company which was designed for people who had good judgment and took away all the guardrails? And that was the big Netflix experiment. Uh, and I think it's been phenomenally successful in making it a really, really attractive place to work for people who want nothing more than the ability to be I'm going to use the word in charge of something as a proxy for 
I am empowered for my area of responsibility to really feel ownership here. That is so true. You know, you because right, and I find, and I'm sure you see this all, but like Google's another world. They all have like a million kombucha taps and video games <laughs> and pods of like. It's like being an adult. Like it's like it's being like a Disney World for like adults. Really, it's like do they ever even work, or they're just doing all these other things on the side? I mean, I, do they? Why do people Why do people keep on doing those things though? They to make it. It looks much more like appealing to come to the office to work. But to your point, and you have way more experience in that level than I do, why do they keep on doing that then? It's easy. As a manager, like it's, it's, a, it's a simple thing you can do. You can just add a line to the budget. You can hire a person who's in charge of... Uh, right. Uh, and, and, and wow, look what I've done to increase my esprit de corps at the company. You yeah. know, <laughs> Patty McCord, who uh, ran, ran Human Resources at uh, Netflix for a long time, her and I worked together at a previous company. And this, this classic story is we were walking back. We, it was a huge corporate campus. You know, it had tennis courts and an Olympic-sized swimming pool and squash courts and a, a theater. It was like kombucha on tap going bad. Yeah. And it had, <laughs> it had a hot tub, okay? And we're walking back from lunch. And we see two or three engineers in the hot tub, and we stop by to say hello. And as we get closer, <laughs> they are bitching about the company. And in the hot tub, in the hot while tub, while they're sitting in the hot tub, yeah, exactly. And so we're <laughs> laughing at that, going, "There's something very ironic about this that they're sitting very. in the hot tub bitching about the company." But it kind of was the trigger for this question. Well, if that's not what does it, what is it? What makes you want to work someplace? Um, and that was some of the seeds of thinking, how do you begin to construct a company that people really want to work at, where they're treated like an adult, where they're, right. given, they're empowered. Um, and that's more than just saying we're going to do it. It really requires a whole cultural top to bottom transformation. That's amazing. I mean, I love all that. I love that inside scoop on stuff. Like, is there any other kind of policies that Netflix has that are interesting that you can share? Like another great one like that? No, I mean the, the the classic. There's no expense policy. Like I said, you yeah, you, yeah, that's a good judgments. one. Yeah, there's no, no there's no travel policy. There's no vacation policy. There's full transparency on salaries. Everybody knows what everybody makes. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, for everybody, for every level. Uh, yes, I think so. Except for I don't think that uh, hourly or people who are working like in customer service know everything all the way up. But everybody who's at a I won't say yeah. management level. But a professional level end up, yes. And everyone's encouraged to go out and interview for jobs. Um, uh, because really? They absolutely. Because th th this, think of this. Let's say that you're working for me. And you usually are the one who finds out that how you've been grossly underpaid for two years. Right. And how do you, is that a good thing? Should I be chortling you know, Mr. Burns with glee at the fact that I was able to exploit you for two years. Right. No, it's a horrible thing to have happened because then you're really pissed off. You feel exploited and you're out of here and you're talented. My job is to make sure that I recognize your true value and pay you as such. And the best way for both of us to know what your true value is to find out what that value is by you being out in the world and understanding what your value is. I don't want to get you at a good price out of ignorance. I want to understand your value. 
Um, but this means that salaries, for example, at Netflix are not set based on a grid system. They're based on what the market um, is currently prepared to pay, which can feel cruel because it might mean that if you happen to be a specialist in AI, for example, and we need AI people, we want the very, very best AI people, we're going to pay that person four or five times what an engineer whose specialty may be search. Right. Which right now is just not favored by the market the same way. Right. It's and applied care, demand, though. Absolutely. And it's being applied yeah. internally. Um, and it's not, it's not like, oh, he's been in the company six years and every year he goes, gets a raise of X percent. And it, you're encouraged to understand what the market is for that particular position. And we want to pay, they want to pay at the very, very top of that scale. But you have to start by knowing what the scale is. There's, wow, there's a, yeah. there's actually, I'll pitch someone else. So I'll pitch my, my own book. You know, that will never work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like an idea. So buy that one. But then when you're done, um, Reed Hastings has a book called The No Rules Rules, which is very explicitly about the Netflix culture um, and how he's, they've taken some of these concepts that came when we were young and when we were smaller and actually managed to scale them. In other words, it's easy to have startup culture when you have 10 people and it's easy right. when you have 100 and it's reasonably possible to have it when you have 1,000. It's really hard when you have 10,000. And I think exactly. one of the big, big things is realizing how do you do that? How do you do that when all of a sudden you have international employees who have different cultures, who, who yeah. interact differently than you, in Silicon Valley people do? So it's really a fascinating book too. You know, I, so that's, I mean, I, I actually noticed his book when I was looking at your book really more too. So I'm like, Hmm, maybe I, does he do podcasts? Maybe I should have him on at some point. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, you're, you're just fine. You're, good you're luck getting him, fine. not good luck interviewing him. No, I was going to say, yeah, I, I, you're perfectly fine for me. I, he doesn't do, he, he, that's he the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> I'm full of it. I'm good. I'm good like that. I'm good like that. Um, he doesn't do podcasts then. He's not a big podcast person or big, no, he has no, he, he's not motivated. He ha, to he's totally, totally focused on what he's working on. And that he, the quick calculation he would do in the car is turn to you and go, that has almost no bearing on how Netflix does. Right, right, right. Exactly. Like I said, I'm perfectly thrilled having you on the podcast. So works yeah. perfectly, it works perfectly fine for me. Um, so because my, I didn't my even... purpose is, is I want right. people to understand all the things we've been talking about. This is exactly a great, I'm delighted to do this because it is my chance to tell people who listen to you and reinforce all the things you tell people, which is that you can do these things, that it just have right. to get started, um, uh, that we're not special people. It's what the book was all about. It's what the podcast is all about. My, my your mission is seems very, very different. Yeah. I was going to say, your mission is very, very different. Your mission Absolutely truly true. is based on just everything I've seen. And just in terms of the po your podcast alone, like, you know, most people do this type of like interview style, right? Where they take someone who's more well-known in the world mm -hmm. and go back and forth. But you really do like, you take it from like, the, like I said at the beginning, so you, you, you really help somebody who's beginning a company and really help shepherd them and coach them. Um, like your mission does seem to be like very authentically um, giving and putting out, giving people the information and the knowledge and the wherewithal to succeed. You know, yeah, it, it's that you know there is there there is this gap I think in that 
the, the, the interviewing the well-known entrepreneurs is done so well and by other people other than I didn't need to add to that oeuvre. But right, the, right. The, 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 what is missing is there's so much Instagram trivial. Yeah. You know, and I'm guilty of it too. You do a beautiful little thing with maybe some little butterflies and you go, stop thinking and start doing. And everyone <laughs> nods and goes, they, take, they ate their little junk food and they go, yeah, that's great. And then right. they're faced with the problem and they go, wait, how? How, how do I start? It's platitudes, I, basically. Exactly. And I wanted, that's what the podcast is really walking through with real people who are really struggling with all the same things that other entrepreneurs are struggling with. And let's, let's solve, let's walk through how you do this. How do you get started? Or if you already started, how do you think about how to position or how do you think about how to focus? How do you think, deal with work-life balance? I mean, it's, it, it's all these things that everyone who has ever tried to do something struggles with. They think they're the only person struggling with it. There's no place that you can really get information on it. And I've kind of realized the only really way that I have to do that is to let people listen in as I'm coaching someone who's struggling with the same thing they're struggling with. So then I have two questions for you. How do you find the people to come onto the podcast? And then what happens after they leave the podcast? Do you follow up with them or is it like, see ya, next? Like no, it's fantastic. I mean, to get on the podcast is people basically call, uh, they come to my website, it's markrandolph.com slash guest. Uh, and they leave me a two minute message. Mm. They talk about who they are, what they're working on. Because I am interested in, you know, are they doing something interesting? Is this a problem I think I can help with? Other people want to um, potentially hear about too. And I'm also trying to get a sense of the energy the person has and will they be interesting to talk to. But, uh, and then we pick a handful of people. Unfortunately, I wish I could do everybody, but I get way, way more submissions than I can do. But the answer to the other question is I absolutely follow up. Um, you do. In fact, the call that I was doing this morning was a follow-up call privately, not recorded or anything, with someone who I coached on a podcast interview um, almost a year ago um, and who was making great progress and now was kind of bumping into next-level problems and wanted some help with it. I am also about to release some brief podcast-worthy segments of follow-up calls that I've done with people who were on the podcast earlier. Mostly because where they've gone with either the advice or the business is just so interesting. It's just yeah. so fun to hear what happened. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, of course. People, it's like, listen, Shark Tank is super popular for a reason. And, the, and a very big piece of people, what I think a very popular segment is when they go back to like, what happened next? Like, what happened to this person? Like, because it's like you, you, you give them like a little taste and people get invested emotionally into the, you know, to their life. And then it's like, okay, well then what now, what, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's really fun. Are you investing in, I do, do you invest in a lot of, the, not a lot, but do you invest in some of these people that their, their companies or their ideas or often I, or at all? I have not yet invested in anybody who has um, come on the podcast, but I do. Uh, I also do this live mentoring on clubhouse every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you do it at 5 p.m. 
Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, no, that's okay. I got a, I got a now, few hours. Now it's okay, right? Now you can do that. You're free on five at five, right? Your wife's okay five o'clock five. five o'clock Pacific. Oh, yeah, that's right. On Tuesday. Oh, that's fine. I never even made that realization. Oh, no. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, now she gets me a lot more a lot more than just uh, after that's five right. o'clock on Tuesdays. That's, but, right. uh, that's what I was going to say. You didn't catch that whole five o'clock on Tuesday until now? No, thank you. You, uh, you oh. gave me a good insight. I got to figure yeah. out how do I apply that. Um, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, I do I, I do that, this live mentoring, and that's more random. That's people in the audience who raise their hand, and we spend 10, 15 minutes with them. And there have been some of those people that I've invested in. Really? Yeah. That's interesting you mentioned Clubhouse, because I mean, I'm not very active on Clubhouse. I've been invited to all these, you know, these uh, meeting rooms and to be on panels. And these things can go on for hours. I mean, like, they've, a few times I've done it. It's you're, it goes for like four hours. I'm like, who has four hours to be sitting in a panel? You know, like, and if you just put it beside you, it's still distracting. You still hear it. It's still if you have phone calls to make or things to do. And, you know, I'm curious, you obviously like Clubhouse if you're doing it. It's obviously, what's your feeling on it? Do you think it's going to take over to be the next like Facebook or next Instagram? Uh, I really don't know. And the, 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 it has a very compelling element to it, which is the just the audio only mm. piece. And the fact that it's always live, um, it's not mm -hmm. a pre-recorded, replayed, it passes past you. It is that sense of sitting at the fire, fireplace, at the campfire in the dark. Yeah. And I like that, and it really speaks, speaks to me that way. It's also a really interesting way to have an unscreened interaction with somebody. So yes. In other words, People can for both the people in the room who realize I could raise my hand and be speaking to Elon Musk or whatever it is, right. you know, for myself to have people to get the podcast is a screening process and it's a it's, it's a whole thing, a whole thing. Whereas this, it's random that we have people who 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 I have people help me who go through the audience looking at people's bio and picking people to come up, and so it's that's really nice. I'm not sure long term. There's something frustrating for my, someone like myself, where all these things that I'm, all this content is gone. It's like this river that just flows past. Mm -hmm. um, totally. But uh, I, in, I'm not going to invest more into it. Uh, doing an hour a week um, is perfect. It's an hour. I start them on time. I end them on time. I was going to say an hour. That's like nothing compared to how they normally go. Correct. And that's why, uh, as someone has told me, and I really believe it's not how many people, it's the level of engagement. Mm -hmm. And we already are having, uh, you can tell lots and lots and lots of people who keep coming back week after week. And that's tells me it doesn't, if I wanted this to work for huge numbers of people, I would be tapping my network of celebrity entrepreneur friends and pumping right. my numbers up, but that's not what I'm in it for. And it seems to be working for what I am is trying actually to, yeah, okay, here's the corny story. Uh, and I, after a, it was after a layoff, um, a lot of people were being laid off. This is at Borland where I worked before a while. You know, 300, 40 people were being laid off. And I was like fighting for this one person who worked for me in France trying to save their job. And the HR person goes, why? He goes, I got to say, I'm kind of impressed with all the effort you're putting into saving this one person out of the 400. He goes, it's like that story of the person walking down the beach 
and there's thousands of sea turtles, which have all been thrown up on the beach and flipped over on their back and are all struggling. And he's walking along one at a time going, okay, I can save this one, and I can save this one, and I can save this one. And that's kind of how I feel about working with all these people who are all struggling to try and yeah. make their ideas real. I can't help everybody, but I can fix this one, and I can help this one, and I can help this one. Right. How did this become your mission like this? Were you all, were you just kind of that person? <laughs> like, cause it's not like your typical, like you're not, you don't seem very ruthless or callous or you've had some great, obviously professional success, but you've been very self-aware of how, you know, I've heard in some of your stuff, like your, your wife and your kids, you talk about them all the time and like balance and, you know, you seem like just a regular dude that likes to like go outside and, you know, ha be with your family. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I'll start the story in a way that totally dispels that myth. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to spend four days on Richard Branson's private island. Okay. Now, you're going now? or you're being, <laughs> No, you're that's, how the, that's how the story starts. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I get invited to spend four days on Richard Branson's private island. Okay. But that's the obnoxious part of the story. But it's because <laughs> Richard Branson has a nonprofit and he makes the island available to certain groups and they can come and do a conference. He donates the island. They charge people a lot of money to come do this and it goes to a charity. And this one particular group that was being brought on was a bunch of was female business owners, very successful women. Mm -hmm. And the theme of this conference was going to be um, uh, finding your purpose. And because I did so much work on basically how to make the step of going from how do you take an idea and make it real, they right. asked me if I would come to speak. And I went, came to, went to my wife and go, um, hey, I just got invited to spend four days in Richard Branson's uh, island with a bunch of women and uh, I'm, I'm going to go mountain biking <laughs> instead. And she goes, not so fast, Buster. And then all of a sudden, of course, we're buying sunscreen. And uh, <laughs> we end up on the island because I go, not a big deal. I'll do my 45 minutes and then my wife and I'll go hang out on the beach. How bad can that be? Right. So I did this, did the bit and then I figured I'd stick around and hear about what, what all this find your purpose stuff is about. Right. And I was like transfixed. It was like they were speaking directly to me because they, they were telling these women was basically as you've achieved all these things in your life, you have financial success, you have, you know, companies, but what's it for? Right. What is that? What, how do you use that? And I realized I had the same thing. I was at that point doing you know, speeches and I could get 10,000 people to listen to me talk, but how do I use that? I could write something and get lots of people to read it, but how do I use that? And that four days was changed my um, outlook. And I went back and really began thinking about how do I take the fact that people like yourself are willing to... Uh, give me the opportunity to come and talk to you. Um, the, a book, pub, book publisher will say, yeah, sure, we'll publish your book. All these incredible gifts, and how do I use it for something? Uh, and it made me realize that all this stuff that I've learned, the more important thing was that all of these tips and tricks and secrets that I've learned in 40 years of entrepreneurship are not just for starting companies and making money. They're all the exact same things anybody could use who has something they want to achieve. I mean, it doesn't need to be starting a company. It could be, I'd love to live in the middle of the city. I'd love to get a better job where I am. I'd love to be able to do something with this club, but they all start the same way. They all start with, I have an idea. 
how do I find a quick, cheap, and easy way to collide it with reality? Um, and I realized I had these things, and it kind of became my purpose to try and unlock people, to uh, take them who are stuck and paralyzed and just give them the shove that they, uh, they needed. Well, it's working. I mean, that Richard Branson, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you, should, you should say thank you to him. Do you still talk to him? How many years ago was that? It was quite a few. I've only talked to him once since then. So, uh, I, but I, you know, I still have a lot of admiration for him. He's, in some ways, he strikes me as another person who shares my whole balance principle. Oh my you know, God, I, yes. I look at, I, I go, here's a guy. So my three, successful entrepreneur, God, kicks my ass. Success, at, at plenty of time outdoors uh, with adventures, kicks my ass. Um, family guy, okay, I'm going to call it a tie. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but so, but listen, I, he's walking living proof that you can be very, very successful, but still be, have balance, be fulfilled in ways other than just working all the time. I have to ask you, I mean, it's kind of a sidebar here, but like, how did, when you were younger, when you grew up, did you have a very close knit family? Were you very close with your parents? You seem like such a mensch. That's why it's like, I, <laughs> you know, that, you know, you, you know you. what a mensch is. You I know? do, like, of course. Did you like, how did you grow up? Like, how were you as a kid? Like little, little Mark at 12 with your family in school? Like, yeah, I, I you know, I, I don't know. You know, it's really hard to know. You're, you're kind of dorky when you're that age. So it's really hard to see what your deeper characteristics are. But were one thing I, close with your family? Were you like close to your mom? Yes, close to my parents, uh, very much so. Well, my siblings, less so. I am now very much. But growing up then, the more telling one is that I'm still really close with many, most of my high school best friends. Yeah. Uh, and still close to most of my, probably closer to them than my college best friends. So it's, really? It's, yeah. So we've kind of still, we kind of still have all stayed connected and we, you know, we had that. And I think, <laughs> I can't, okay, here's true confessions. So okay, I, I paint, I, pa I paint my toenails. Okay. Do you really? I really do. <laughs> and the reason I'm sharing this deep insight with you is I had this realization a while ago, which is that there's two scales. Um, one is, um, how much you care about what people think of you. And it it starts at zero when you're about six months old. And it peaks at probably 16. Okay. And then it gets a little, you know, then it goes a bit lower. And then now I could give a shit. I'm like, I'm at zero again. Right. And, and I kind of, my wife finally forced me a few years ago into getting pedicures and on a lark, <laughs> I had them paint my nails too. And I go, I kind of like this. And at first I was going, I can't. And I went, oh, what do I care? So exactly. it, it, it's like you had, so what you care about things and pursuing your own, what you, having a sense of what you like goes up the other way. The reason I tell you this and how it relates is that I think I was incredibly lucky that I had this incredibly tight group of best friends when I went through that age. Mm, yeah. And I never had this sense of, insecurity about who I was. I could mm -hmm. always act myself. Um, and I look back, that was probably the biggest gift that being part of that group uh, could have given me at what is usually a very, very vulnerable time, which is reflected, of course, in what happens, the tragedy of what happens to young people now who have to put up these appearances on Instagram and social media. 
Exactly. And also you didn't feel like, I guess like you don't have that feeling of you have something to prove or you have like a, a self-esteem issue where you're doing it for the, you do it. You have to do something to prove something to yourself, so to speak, you know, I'm just laughing. Uh, Cause I'm going, I can't believe I confessed that I painted my toenails on a, uh, on a big podcast. <laughs> I'm like, well, don't worry. I'm going to use that as a teaser. If you don't mind. You, you better not. <laughs> You've got to leave this as, as the Easter egg that someone happens to discover if they listen all the way through. That's true. But then how would I, how do I tease them into the podcast? I just, I, that's like a perfect way to get them to listen to the entire You're uh, welcome podcast. to say that Mark reveals a very intimate secret about himself at the conclusion of the podcast. So that's exactly, that? that's, that's great. You must be a great at branding. Were you ever a branding guy besides a direct marketing guy? Oh well, yeah, I've been marketing guy my whole life. I mean, that's what, that's what, that's the side I come from is, is the whole marketing side. But like, but is it, I guess branding is part of the marketing stuff. For oh, sure, it's huge. Right? Yeah, it's what what does the company stand for? How do people think about you? It's abs it's a big, big, big piece of it. Who came up with the name Netflix then? <laughs> uh, so picking a name is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. uh, cause you've got to find something which you can get the domain name, which isn't taken, where you can also get a trademark, you can get your Instagram, your Twitter. Uh, you can't mean something obscene in right. uh, Cro Croatian, whatever. Um, and and <laughs> it, it's hard now. It was hard then. Right. Um, and uh, oh, I don't have time for the whole story. But we basically go, okay, we've got to find a name. And the way we did it is we had a whiteboard. And in one column, we wrote down all the names that we think of that were evocative of the internet. You know, web and net and whatever. And then the other one were names evocative of movies. Mm. Uh, and then began drawing lines between them all. And then I went back and did all this research trying to figure out which ones had the domain name available, didn't mean something obscene, could get uh, trademarks and all those things. Um, and they were all bad, including Netflix. People didn't like Netflix. Uh, and it's if you remember, huh, oops, maybe don't remember because you were only <laughs> One, exactly. but back in 19, we're not um, even born yet. You're not even born yet. <laughs> so <laughs> back in 98, um, uh, you know, uh, um, back then a porno was sometimes called a skin flick Yeah, or skin flicks would be the plural. And so people are going, ah, oh, it sounds like we do pornos and they go, and that big X at the end, that doesn't help anything either. Right. <laughs> but we were stuck. Everything else was worse. And so eventually we go, okay, it's a little bit porny, but we're going to go with it. Um, and that was it. And at first it did not roll off the tongue. Now, of course, yeah, it feels natural, but it takes a long time to get comfortable with the name. Oh, wow. I mean, that's good. So, yeah. So you make two different columns and you kind of just blended them together. And that was the, yeah. that's had, the rest is history. We had Netflix, Webflix, Interflix, you know, Netcine, you know, Net film, you know, it was ridiculous. I actually well, have this really cool archive uh, item, which is the yellow pad that I had written down all the uh, possible combinations that I was going to go back and research. So really? Yeah. It's actually, and actually reproduced the page in my book. So there's, there's the teaser for the other people who uh, get past the toenail and want to want something else they want to go looking for. No, exactly. That's a good one too. I, 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 and I know I'm taking up so much of your time and I so apologize. Um, I've got about seven minutes. How about well, that? Okay. You know what I didn't even, I didn't ask any of the questions I even had written down, if you can believe it, which is the, 
the most the net for the Netflix versus Blockbuster, the going from renting to streaming. I have to ask you one of those. I mean, it just has to happen. So, which one do you want to tell? What's what's the better story? The Blockbuster versus Netflix story, or the the going from renting to streaming, the the evolution. Can you? Which one do you want to do? Can you we'll do both in seven minutes? Yeah, we'll try. I don't know. Let's, let's talk okay. about do the do the Blockbuster one. Okay. Um, and I'll do it pretty quickly. So, uh, just to dispel the myth, everyone kind of thinks that companies you have an idea and then boom, they're perfect, and it is completely not true. Everything right. sucks. So this idea that Reed and I had in the car about DVDs by mail that my wife said will never work, that everyone said would never work, it didn't work. They were right. Um, and it took us a year and a half to figure out how to make it work. And ironically, it was subscription that made it work. It was no due dates, no late fees that made it work. And it was such a complicated, weird business model that made it work. We had to give a first month free. And the problem with the subscription businesses is that you pay all your acquisition cost up front and you make it back over all the months someone subscribes, which means the more successful you are, the more money it costs you because you go wow, deeper and yeah. deeper and deeper and you've got to dig out. All right. So we're crushing it. And so we are so excited because subscription orders are flying in, which means cash is flying out. Not a problem, except... All of a sudden, the spring of 2000 turns to the summer of 2000, dot-com bubble bursts, there's no more money. We are in deep trouble. Mm. And we're on the verge of going out of business. And so we decide to pursue strategic alternatives, which basically means we've got to sell this and fast. <laughs> and the strategic alternative is Blockbuster. But they're like infinitely bigger. I mean, we have a uh, hundred and some odd employee. They have 60,000 employees and they have 9,000 stores. And I think we were at 5 million and they're 6 billion. So nothing. They wouldn't answer the phone, wouldn't return the emails. And they happened to um, call when we're on this corporate retreat in the foothills outside of Santa Barbara. And on retreat, all I have with me is t-shirts and shorts and flip-flops. Uh, and that's when they call and say, we'll see you tomorrow in Dallas, which leads to Reed and I in this 27th floor cavernous conference room with the big 30 foot endangered hardwood conference table and the blockbuster people in there and their ex sport coats that cost more than my car. And I'm there in a t-shirt and shorts. <laughs> and <laughs> Reed at least has on a Hawaiian shirt. So he's got buttons. <laughs> but anyway, we, we pitched to combine the companies that we would run the online business, they'd run the stores, we'd do a blended model, and, and they're nodding, and it's, we're getting excited, this is gonna work. Uh, and then they asked Reed, how much? And he'd practiced in the car, in the plane rather, and he goes, okay, $50 million. And basically, um, they laughed at us. Uh, at the hubris that we could possibly be worth $50 million at the peak or the trough, I guess, of the dot-com bubble bursting. Um, and it was this profoundly crushing moment because getting the call, seeing how well the pitch mm -hmm. was going, we go, we're saved. Blockbuster is going to save us. And now we're flying back and realizing that not only is Blockbuster not going to save us, they're going to compete with us. 
uh, and that if uh, we're going to get out of this, there is no magic bullet. There's no, as in the movies, the cavalry is not going to come around the corner and save us. We have to get out on our own. And but you know, my dad used to always perk me up sometimes by saying, you know, Mark, sometimes the only way out is through. Right. That you've got to stop looking for some end run, for some quick solution, some way to avoid the problem. You're just going to have to turn and face it head on. And we turned and faced it head on. And it took us almost 10 years, but eventually did drive Blockbuster into bankruptcy. Um, The company, which used to have 9,000 stores, now has one. Uh, The company they could have bought for $50 million uh, now has a market cap of almost, of more than $200 billion. It's crazy. Uh, Did they counter your office though? Like offer? Did they say, okay, not 50, but five? It was a a non-starter. I think they didn't see, for for them, they didn't see this as being a viable business and it would have been a distraction. I think this was the kicking the tires uh, exercise for them. Luckily right. for us, luckily for us, I think had when they finally mounted a um, a defense many years later, um, it was very effective, and they almost um, took us down. So, who knows what would have happened had that happened uh, earlier? And you know, so, the, uh, go. I know you're going to leave, but the cool. irony is Netflix has a blockbuster documentary on the the demise of the company, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, I know it's a it's an amazing uh, amazing story. But listen, here's the lesson. If we are take anything away, it's simply this, that you know, if you don't want to disrupt your own business, you're just leaving it open for someone to disrupt it for you. And that works no matter what size or scale um, you're working on. I love that story. Thank you. That's a good way to leave it. We, I won't ask you the other question. People can go <laughs> listen to it or read the book. Okay? We'll have to come back for uh, for uh, number two. two for the follow up, like you say. You always exactly. like, think, uh, think podcasters should do. hundred percent, hundred percent. You've been great. Where do so people? Where do you want to give your information for people to find you? Or sure, in, a, much- in a nutshell, the best place for all things Mark Randolph is markrandolph.com. That's Mark with a C, PH at the end. Uh, and that's where you can get links to the podcast. You can sign up for all my emails I do about all kinds of interesting inf- entrepreneurial subjects. Find out about all my uh, social media handles, including now TikTok, believe it or not. <gasps> You're on TikTok now too? No shirtless dancing. This is purely <laughs> content. Uh, yeah, it's more because it's so interesting to try and experiment. But that's the wow. place. And listen, the podcast, which is probably the best source, is that will never work. Available wherever you get your podcast from. Well, you've been great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You've been uh, we've very insightful, great information that we can glean from. And I hope to see you again in person sometime soon. Oh, I hope so too. That would be great. I- Thanks so much. This was really, really fun. Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle Podcast, powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. 
On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.